It's sometime after midnight. You're asleep, of course, so you don't hear the sound of the dark figure breaking into your house through your window. The figure, a true walking nightmare, creeps through your house, intent on his purpose. You sleep like a baby as the killer finds your bedroom and stands over you, looking at you, while you slumber. With a grim smile, he holds a knife over you. Your pleasant dreams are quickly interrupted by the pain of plunging stabs as your life drains onto the floor in a gory pool of blood. He's a serial killer. He's killed before, and he'll kill again. Welcome to Fangs and Folklore. I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert in all things monster, paranormal, and horror, coming to you from the haunted swamps of Louisiana. I'm a horror writer, and I welcome you to my frightening world. Please check out my books on Amazon, uh, starting with Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story. It's volume one of the Gravedigger series. It's a six-volume series. One through four are out. Volume five's coming out very soon. It's a story of a failing punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of horrible creatures of the night, like vampires and zombies and so forth. It's horror comedy, and it's super entertaining. So uh, be sure to pick up your copy. Uh, volume 1 is now available in audiobook also. Uh, so they're all Kindle and paperback. Volume 1 audiobook also, and Volume 2 audiobook will be coming out very soon. So check it out. So I've decided to introduce the wine tasting again in the beginning of every Fangs and Folklore. What does wine have to do with horror? The answer is nothing, really. I just happen to like red wine. But I, uh, for those of you who like it also, I like to do a little wine tasting just to introduce some culture into our horror here in the studio, in the cellar of the abandoned castle in the haunted forest. It's Fangs and Folklore Studio. So I managed to get my, well, I didn't get my hands on it. It was given to me as a gift, a bottle of 2000 Opus One. Now, if you know anything about red wine, you know that Opus One is a fantastic, highly rated wine. I personally like old world wines, France, Spain, Italy, uh, Portugal sometimes, but I don't like California wines overall. However, this is a California wine that can stand up to the best the world has to offer, Opus One. 2000 was a fantastic year, by the way, for Bordeaux, and uh, of course Opus One is, is it's an American version of a Bordeaux, kind of. But, it, uh, but 2000 also in the U.S. was a good year, so... Uh, I'm going to read you very quickly the tasting notes of the makers of the wine. It says, Despite an early bud break, vintage 2000 saw a long, cool growing season, a harvest extending into late October, soft and plush. Okay, aromas of sandalwood, leather, caramel, a hint of anise, showing flavors of blackberry and herbs. The wine is harmonious with sweet tannins and a long, intense finish. All right, so I'm going to put the label up there on the screen. For those of you watching, you can see what I'm talking about, Opus 1. Okay. Mm, yeah, oh god, it's so good on the nose. Definitely some blackberry and herb, and um, there's some terroir of where the wine comes from. Earthy terroir. Okay, we're gonna take a sip here. Mm. You want to slurp it, let it get on all your taste buds. God, that's fantastic. Wow. So it does definitely have some uh, blackberry, no doubt about it. Although 2000 is 22 years old, so it's aged a bit. Um, it's mellowed out. Sandalwood, leather, caramel, as they say, sure. Hint of anise, maybe, a little minerality there. An herb, herbal for sure. Now, when I say herbal, that's it's a very subtle flavor. From, you know, it's 20 years aged. <laughs> it's it's mellowed out, but it's still excellent. And the tannins are, uh, I would say, light to medium. And they certainly extend it, the wine's life, bottle life and aging life. And uh, the finish is very long. 
and very complimentary. It's it's such an excellent wine. If you can get your hands on an Opus One, and it doesn't have to be a 2000, just about all of their vintages are good, but you can research the best vintages. They're not cheap, but they are worth it. And again, one of the only New World wines that I personally like. So highly recommend it, the Opus One. And I'll be enjoying that, uh, sipping it as we go through. Now, today's episode of, well, tonight's actually is night right now, here in the abandoned castle, is going to be starting a brief series on a topic that we all find fascinating, and I'd like to figure out why. The topic is serial killers. Yes, serial killers. What is it about these crazy maniacs, murderous maniacs, that we find so fascinating? Let's explore that a little bit. I was surprised to learn that there's not a single official FBI definition of serial killing. It's debated a lot. There have been many groups who've attempted to create a definition and the problem is that so many different killers have so many different motives and MOs, you know, modus operandi, uh, method of doing things, that it's hard to get one simple definition. But I think a good general definition is that of the Serial Murder Symposium, which is a group of, of experts, interested parties that came together. And they said this, basically, serial murder is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender or offenders in separate events. Okay, so you kill a bunch of people at one event, that's a mass murder. You kill them separately, two or more, in separate occasions, that's serial murder. Okay? That separate events thing seems to be the main thing, separating serial murder from other kinds of murders. What is it that fascinates us so much? There's, you know, there's all sorts of crime shows on TV that tell the story of cases solved with serial killers, books written, all sorts of things about these serial killers. What is so fascinating? They are, I think most people would agree, you know, the scum of the earth, the, the, the worst sorts of people, the truly depraved and immoral. And even people like me who enjoy horror genre and music and books and film, and I find interest in the dark side of things, I don't hesitate to condemn serial killers in the real world. You know, people might consider some aspects of serial killers cool, except by that we just mean, like, interesting, right? Not that it's, it's a good thing, serial murder not actually supporting what they do. And I want to make that clear as I start this series to avoid any misunderstanding. I do find serial killers interesting, but I wholly condemn harming other people, especially killing them, okay? Get that out of the way, my disclaimer. I'm against them, right? But they're still fascinating because this is so bizarre, so outside the experience of most of us. Keep these questions in mind then. Why do we, why are we so fascinated with them? How exactly is a serial killer different than, say, a Genghis Khan? And I just, that came up with that Example off the top of my head, no offense to Mongolians who revere him, but he killed a, who knows how many innocent people, thousands, tens of thousands, but he's not considered a serial killer, whereas someone like Ted Bundy is. So what differentiates them? Why is one different? One's a, a conqueror and one is a serial killer. A lot of questions. So I'm going to begin with Albert Fish. Albert Fish. Fish spelled like the animal because he was just so demented. If you've never heard of Albert Fish, Strap yourself in for a wild ride. This guy is crazy. So his full name was Hamilton Howard Albert Fish. Uh, he was born May 19, 1870, and died 1936, so that means he lived in the, the late 1800s, early uh, 1900s. He was a serial killer and a rapist and a child molester and a child killer and a cannibal. He was a child eater. I mean, truly the worst of the worst. He killed at least three children, but he claims he killed many, many more. Uh, but it's hard to prove. You know, a lot of these guys, when they're caught, they uh, claim all sorts of things. It's hard to prove it, you know. 
other nicknames, the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac, and the Boogeyman. Fish, uh, Albert Fish once said that he has children in every state, meaning victims in every state. He claimed to be about 100. That's how he claimed. Uh, but again, hard to prove. So he's born in Washington, D.C., May 19, 1870. His father was American, uh, English American, English ancestry. His mother was uh, Scots-Irish American. So they're both from the UK area. And this is a little unusual. His father was 43, old, uh, 43 years older than his mother. So when Albert was born, his father was already 75 years old. Um, imagine, I don't know what kind of a man his father was, even if he was the best of fathers. It's hard to be a great father at that age, I would imagine. So uh, he had siblings, Walter, Annie, and Edwin. He was the youngest of the children. And um, he, uh, I'm going to tell you in a moment, he had to live in an orphanage for a little while, and he got the nickname there, Ham and Eggs. He never explained what that meant, but apparently it really bothered him, and he was really bullied, so he insisted on Albert as his, uh, as his given name. Uh, he, was, he was bullied heavily. All right, so Fish's family has a history of mental illness. You find that a lot of serial killers, not always, but a lot of them had terrible childhoods. Some of them didn't. Some of them were just self-indulgent. But Fish's ha uh, family had a history of mental illness. His uncle had uh, bipolar disorder, severe. Uh, one of his brothers was uh, involuntarily committed to a mental hospital. Uh, his sister had mental problems. Uh, he had other close relatives with mental illness. His mother would, would get hallucinations. Uh, uh, she'd see things and hear things that weren't there. Hallucinations. So it's, it's easy to see that Albert didn't exactly have a stable, supportive childhood, right? He's, he's kind of ha has a disadvantage from the start. In 1875, his father dies of a heart attack. <clears throat> so his mother, he's a sing she's a single mother with four children, and she is mentally ill and probably poor, so she temporarily put him into St. John's Orphanage in Washington. Um, you know, uh, he, was, he, he really was terribly abused there, uh, physical abuse, and um, he said, I was there, I was there, here's his, his quote, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. So he was physically beaten and abused, probably psychologically, I imagine, too, emotionally. Imagine how hard it must have been for young Albert to have his mother give him to an orphanage. I mean, I know probably she was incapable of raising those children alone, probably poor, definitely mentally ill. But just imagine how it would feel for your mother to give you away to an orphanage. The, the hurt, I can't imagine that level of hurt and pain and, and uh, rejection, you know, that motherly love. And then suffering abuse at the orphanage we almost start to feel sorry for him, you know, to pity him. He didn't have much of a chance in life. He was, uh, you know, boy, he had a rough one, rough childhood. Some people, it really does feel like they never have a chance in life. And Albert is one of those, in my opinion. I'm not justifying his later actions, of course, but I'm just maybe offering some thought, something to think about what drives people to do these things. The poor kid didn't have a fighting chance, you know, from the get-go. Uh, in 1880, his mother got a job with the government, finally took him back from the orphanage. Um, at age 12, he started a romantic relationship with another boy. So uh, this boy was very, had some very extreme sexual fetishes, like that of drinking urine, <laughs> urolagnia, urolagnia, and then corprophagia, corprophagia, which is eating caca, if <laughs> you'll excuse me. So I mean, very extreme fetishes there. Uh, fish would go to public bathhouses 
and he, you know, watched the other boys uh, get naked and get undressed. He had a habit of writing obscene letters to, to women from classified ads and, and agencies that help you meet someone to get married or to date. He, you give the names of the women and write obscene letters. I'm not laughing at that, you know, objectively, but it's just kind of a weird thing to do. I guess that's the, the uh, early 1900s version of sending unsolicited genitalia pics over Facebook or something, writing dirty letters to women. So we already see that he has this, he has this association with love and pleasure, uh, you know, along with weird extreme fetish practices and creepy behavior and obscenity. So he's, he's, he's off, right? He, he doesn't know how to have a healthy view of love and relationships. Uh, 12 years old, those things are imprinted in, into his brain. Um, 20 years old, he moved to New York City. He began, he acted as a prostitute, according to him. He said he was a male prostitute and raped many young boys. In 1898, so he's 28 years old, his mother arranged a marriage with a, a woman named Anna Mar uh, Mary Anna Mary Hoffman, nine years younger. He had six children. I mean, my God, this guy. So he's got a family. Um, he continued to molest children, sometimes even really young, like six years and under. He... Um, he had a he, he he tells his story, which might give you a little insight into him, his development as a killer. He went to a wax museum once, and there was a bisection of a penis. Now I don't know why that's in a wax museum, but whatever, medical exhibit. And he became obsessed with it. He got sexual pleasure from looking on the insides of a penis, and he said he became obsessed with mutilation, sexual mutilation. So he makes this connection in his mind between love, romance, and pain and mutilation. A very bad dangerous connection. Uh, he was arrested for grand larceny. I'm not sure what he stole, but he spent some time in Sing Sing um, and then, of course, gets out. And then he, you know, he's, he's, think about it, he's developed from a troubled young boy with a terrible childhood. Now he's a criminal, you know, a, a con, a hardened criminal, and he's associated sex and love with mutilation. That's a bad recipe there, bad stuff brewing. Around 1910, he gets out of prison and uh, so that's what, seven years. And he met a 19-year-old guy named Thomas Kedden. This was one of his first true acts of, of demented torture. He took Kedden to a um, cabin, and um, he said that they began a relationship, a, a, a homosexual relationship that involved lots of physical torture. Uh, he said the man was intellectually disabled, and we'll see that pattern of fish preying on people who maybe can't fight back as well as others. Uh, so he takes Kedden to this farmhouse and he tortured him for two weeks. Two weeks he tortures this man, tied up. And then finally he cuts off half of the man's penis and, and he was going to let him bleed to death. But somehow he said it was hot outside and he, the, you know, the body would rot and he would the people would smell him and catch him. So he decided not to kill him. He bandaged the wound and kind of left the guy there. And when he cut off half of his penis... Albert says, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me, end quote. Um, he says, uh, quote, took the first train I could to get back home. I never heard of what became of him or tried to find out that, that victim. So now we have his first real criminal assault and mutilation. He's in all the way now, right? There's no turning back. Presumably he's not yet committed murder, but he's really only one step from murder. And the only reason he didn't kill was because he had the fear of being caught. Right, he's kind of now on the track to a deranged life of killing, and there's no turning back. Um, his wife left him in 1917. He's now a single parent, 
And um, let me say this, though. There's no evidence that he ever abused his own children. I'm not saying that's woohoo that redeems him, but there's no evidence of that. Um, she left him in poverty. He began to have hallucinations. Uh, he heard voices from Saint John, of John the Apostle, rather. John the Apostle. Um, so he's mentally ill in a time where there's not much you can do about mental illness, really not even a basic medical understanding of what's happening. Uh, he begins then to indulge in self-harm. Remember, he, he's associated uh, physical pain with sexual pleasure. He would, okay, brace yourself, he would take long needles and stick them into his groin and abdomen and just leave them there. And after his arrest, they took an x-ray and they found 29 needles in his pelvic region. Oh my God. He also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle and inserted wool doused with lighter fluid into his butt and set it alight. Okay. The guy loves pain. He's associated pain with pleasure. Um, okay. He developed a, an obsession with cannibalism for some reason. Started by, by cooking, well, animal meat, like regular meat, beef, pork, whatever. He would start eating it raw. Uh, and that was his whole dinner. He would serve it to his children, too. So he started off eating raw animal meat to kind of train himself. Um, I'm not sure how he made the transition from mutilation to uh, cannibalism. Uh, some cannibal killers, like Jeffrey Dahmer comes to mind, he ate his victims so that they'd be a part of him forever. He feared and hated abandonment and, and loneliness, so by eating his victims, Dahmer figured they'd become a part of him forever. They could never leave him. Okay. As ter in terms of Albert Fish, we don't know exactly why he turned to cannibalism. Maybe a natural step in the evolution of a killer? I don't know. So, um... In 1919, he stabbed uh, a boy who was intellectually disabled, mentally disabled. Um, he said that he chose mentally disabled people and African-American people as his victims because he said they wouldn't be missed when they were dead, when they, he killed them. Um, he said that he, uh, he admitted that he would pay boys to recruit other boys for him to kill. He had a set of instruments, tools, that he called his implements of hell, a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small handsaw that he would torture these boys with. So we have him moving officially into murder, right? The boy in Georgetown probably was his first murder victim. Um, on, in 1924, he finds this uh, eight-year-old girl, Beatrice Keel, who is playing alone on her parents' farm. He tricked her. He said, I want you to come help me pick some rhubarb. I'm going to pay you. And she said, okay, you know, little innocent little girl who's eight years old. But at the last minute, the mother came home and, and saw what was happening and chased him away. Uh, yeah, so that was a very close call. Uh, three days later, he finds this kid, Francis McDonald, who is a nine-year-old boy, um, and he kills him. He said that God commanded him to torture and sexually mutilate children. This is all happening in the New York, Staten Island area, by the way. Now, um, shortly before his... Uh, his murder of Grace Budd, which is really the most disturbing murder he ever did, I think. He tested his implements of hell on this Cyril Quinn, a, a kid named Cyril Quinn. He was a boy, and they were playing on a sidewalk, and Fish said, have you eaten lunch yet? They said, no. He said, why don't you come have sandwiches in my house? I don't know. Uh, naive young boys, you know, maybe that time of the early 1900s, people were more trusting. I don't know. Anyway, they uh, went to his house. They ate. And he had them somehow wrestling on his mattress. Kind of sick. And they uh, found underneath it the knife, the, the implements of hell. They got scared and ran away. So that was a close call also. He I said he liked to send obscene letters to women. 
Um, he was arrested finally for doing that. They caught him somehow, and he went to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, which is in New York City. Uh, he spent some time there, but nothing came of it. And I can't help but think, man, imagine if they had really learned about his psyche and done something about it. They could have prevented so much more suffering. So let's pause for a second what, and, and then look at some of the things that make Albert Fish, in my mind at least, possibly the most vile, brutal, offensive killer I've ever heard of. There's, there's one or two others that we're going to talk about that could be worse, but he's pretty bad. So first, he had a huge body count. He claimed, in the hundred, he claimed at least 100, right? Second, he targeted people with mental disabilities. That's just a low thing to do, you know, take advantage of people who had less of a chance to fight back or escape or to even understand what's happening. Third, he targeted children. There's something especially vile, you know, in destroying the innocence of a child and physically harming them. You know, they're trusting by nature, and it's, it's obscene to violate that trust. Fourth, he associated physical pain with sexual and presumably romantic pleasure. You know, sexual pleasure is a biological urge, so it's like once he started, it's pretty much impossible for him to stop. Once his brain associates this urge with, with these actions, it's kind of impossible to stop. Finally, he was a cannibal. That's pretty awful. I'm going to do another episode eventually about cannibalism, but there's something really revulsive, uh, uh, repulsive and creepy, right, about cannibalism. It's like, it probably is an evolutionary response to keep us from eating one another, <laughs> you know, the preservation of the tribe or the village and so forth. But, this, you know, it's very disturbing. Now, let's take a look at what might be the worst crime Albert ever committed, the Grace Bud murder. Um, this might make him the most heinous and vile and evil killer that we know of, this one. So, on in, uh, May 25th, 1928, he sees this um, ad in the newspaper uh, that there's a young guy, an 18-year-old boy slash man, who wants to find work, okay, and he gives his name and address. So Fish goes to the address, uh, he's 58 years old at this point, by the way, uh, in Manhattan, and uh, he said, yeah, I have a job for the guy. Um, he said, I'm going to, uh, basically he said, I'm going to hire you and your friend there, I'll pay you well, I'm going to uh, uh, send for you in a few days. Uh, and I'm going to come pick you up, and I'm going to give you some work. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, great. Um, when he returned, he was going to, you know, take Edward and murder him and mutilate him. He just so happened to meet Edward's younger sister, a 10-year-old girl named Grace Budd. I'm going to show you her picture. This is a sweet-looking girl, you know, 10 years old. And apparently when he saw her, he changed his mind. He said, I'm not going to, in his mind, he said, I'm not going to kill Edward now. I want to kill Grace. So he comes up with a story about his niece's birthday party, somehow convinces the parents to let him take uh, Grace to uh, the party with him. And uh, how did he do that? You know, some of these serial killers, which we'll talk about, they're sociopaths, and they, they have this superficial charm about them that seems to be able to convince people. But he takes this 10-year-old girl, so presumably out to a party, just him and her. <laughs> and um, basically, she's never heard from again. Now, in 1934, November, so this, let's see, 28, so that's a few years later. They, they, their daughter's gone. They haven't heard from her, presumed dead. This anonymous letter is sent to Grace Bud's parents, and it's the letter that eventually uh, leads to his capture. I'm going to read you this whole letter because it is sick and demented. I want you to see a little bit into this man's mind. So just listen. This is his letter to Mrs. Bud. Quote, My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. 
On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. Pause, close quote. I don't think that's really true, but, uh, but anyway. Okay, back to the letter. Quote, a boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. Then he took them home and stripped them, tied them in a closet, burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. Uh, okay, so he goes on. He says that this guy he's talking about killed the boy. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, he says, except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, and he says, parentheses, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. And then he, uh, close quote. So he says in the letter now, uh, he was living next to this guy, and he heard about this. So uh, he was invited for lunch, and he says, uh, we had lunch, quote, we had lunch. Grace, okay, so, all right. So he got a taste for human flesh, he claims. Now, uh, he says to Grace's, Grace Bud's mother, to remind her of who he was. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all of my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her. She said she would tell her mama. Listen to this now. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was, roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. Close quote. As if that's supposed to bring some comfort to the mother, right? This is some sick stuff, ladies and gentlemen. He's a cannibal, a child killer, a child eater. How was he caught? The letter that he sent there to Grace Bud's mother had a little um, um, I guess a watermark on it that said NYPCBA, which was the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. Just so happened that a janitor... Um, had, let's see, he had taken some of this, he worked at that NYPCBA, uh, this janitor, he brought some of the stationery home and he happened to leave it when he moved out of the, the room that Fish then moved into. So Fish just used whatever stationery was there to write the letter and that's what caught him, right? Um, so um, uh, a landlady also gave some information. Anyway, uh, so he went to this the, the room that Fish was renting and Fish returned. He, uh, he said, I want to take you downtown for questioning. Fish took out a razor blade, tried to attack him, but he disarmed him. And then he took him to police headquarters where he openly confessed to the murder. All right, openly confessed. So the Grace Bud murder has got to be his worst. Here's another one of his crimes that creeps me out. Billy Beaton and his 12... So Billy Beaton is three years old, 12-year-old brother. They're playing 
and the 12-year-old leaves for his apartment. There's another boy, four years old, named Billy Gaffney. Um, so the boys disappear. Beaten, the older boy, is later found on the roof of the apartment, hiding. He asked what ha when he was asked what happened to Gaffney, the little boy, Beaton said the boogeyman took him. Oh, that just gives me, sh oh God, gives me chills. And they never found Gaffney's body, the little boy, but Fish confessed to killing him. Here's his confession, okay, to killing Gaffney. Quote, I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best. His monkey and peewees, okay, here's a grown 58, 60-year-old man killing people who can't say penis and testicles. He calls them his monkey and peewees and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Uh, he says, goes on, Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees, and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when meat had roasted about a quarter hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the, every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey, meaning his penis, his little monkey was sweet as a nut, but his peewees, testicles, I could not chew, threw them in the toilet, close quote. Wow. Hope you get an idea of what sort of man Albert Fish was. He truly was the real-world boogeyman, the creature hiding in your closet, you know? So what happened eventually to old Uncle Albert? Well, Albert Fish, he goes on trial for the murder of Grace Budd, that's the girl, 10-year-old girl, on March 11, 1935. He is, uh, his lawyer claims insanity, okay? I mentioned that they found 29 needles lodged in his pelvis area, but he, um after being interviewed by some psychiatrists for the trial, several of them said he had sexual fetishes, including, okay, get ready, get ready for this list, sadism, meaning um, hurting others, masochism, hurting yourself, flagellation, whipping, exhibitionism, showing off yourself to others, voyeurism, speaking, spying on people, peekerism, um, peekerism, I think, is um, poking people, maybe, sticking things in them, needles, uh, cannibalism, corpophagia, eating caca, urophilia, drinking urine, hematolagnia, drinking blood, pedophilia, children, necrophilia, dead bodies, and infibulation. Infibulation. Um, infibulation, I believe, is the, the mutilation of female genitalia. And sorry to be graphic, but it's cutting off the, the clitoris and sewing the, the lips together. So that's, yeah. So his lawyer claims that he's obviously insane, can't be held responsible for his actions. Uh, the jury disagrees, says <laughs> insane or not, he's guilty of murder. Uh, he's sentenced to death by electrocution. He go, he arrives to, he's put into Sing Sing Prison, which is there in New York, in 1935, and in 1936, not much, not even a year later, he's executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing, electric chair. Uh, at 11.06 p.m., he's taken to the chair, pronounced dead three minutes later, buried in the Sing Sing Prison Cemetery, and his grave is there to this day. Um, when the jury found him guilty, listen to what he said, quote, What a thrill that will be if I have to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried. But it wasn't the right verdict. I'm not really sane, you know. Close quote. 
So Albert Fish, my God, you know, terrible child-eating serial killer, horrible, terrifying real-life boogeyman, just depraved from day one. We, uh, at Fangs and Folklore, you know, we not only like to learn about the horrors of the world, but try to think about them and see how they relate to humanity. And, and people like Albert Fish really make me think a lot. What do you do with someone like Albert Fish? He was the worst, vilest, you know, sort of human being. He was dedicated to what most humans would say pure evil for his entire life. And he went out of his way to torture and murder and eat the mentally disabled and especially children. He enjoyed pain and uh, mutilation. Uh, you know, he was the devil in human form, if such a thing could be. So what about it? What about people like this? Was he born evil? You know, was it in his biological chemistry, his brain chemistry from his birth? Or did he choose to be evil at some point? What about his childhood? You know, it was abusive and miserable. Does that influence it? Does that, did that change him? That kind of torment and trauma does something to a person, you know. It changes them. People who undergo extreme trauma, especially in childhood, are just warped. Um, then again, most people who have bad childhoods don't become serial killers and child eaters. So, you know, does the fact that Albert felt sexual pleasure in cases of physical pain indicate that his brain was wired wrong? Um, I'll give you my opinion, wrong as I probably am. <laughs> I do think that some people are just born messed up. You know, they're born, they never have a chance. It's probably genetics, probably brain chemistry problems. Um, they're born without that part of, of us that most humans have that makes us control our impulses and urges, that makes us uh, know that some things are just wrong and off limits. That part of a brain that says no matter how mad you are at that person, you're not going to go over there and murder them because that's wrong, you know, and, and you can't do that. Um, I think some people are just born warped. I think other people can turn evil. The level of suffering that some humans, especially children, uh, endure on a daily basis is unfathomable, you know, unfathomable. I'm frankly surprised we don't have more killers in society because some people have horrible, horrible abusive childhoods, just demented stuff. That sort of misery and abuse at that age changes your brain chemistry. It absolutely does. We know this. Finally, I think there's some people who just give in to their animal sides and almost like choose to do evil. You know, we're all human beings, but we're also still animals. We're, we're great apes. We're hairless apes. And there's still a part of us, as civilized as we may think uh, ourselves to be, there's still a part of us that's that animal that desires hunting and killing and, and eating and sex and, and uh, you know, those kind of things. Some people may just willingly give in to those urges, take pleasure in it, you know. I think some people actually do choose to do evil, these kind of people. Um, so... I think people who choose evil, let's talk about punishment now in, in jail and so forth. I think people who choose to do evil like that, they need to be stopped for sure, need to be removed from society, whether that means prison, death penalty, or maybe in a kinder society, incarceration, attempted rehabilitation, I don't know. But they have to be removed from society to prevent them from doing that more. They probably can be rehabilitated with therapy, medication, and things like that. What about people who are just born messed up? or who just turn evil through horrible childhood abuse. Do they really have a choice in the matter? I mean, should they be punished? I think they should be removed from society, for sure, just from the practical effect of stopping the murders, right? But as for punishing them, is it fair to punish someone who was born evil? Is it fair to punish a dog for being a dog, a cat for being a cat? 
you know. The ones who turn evil from abuse probably could be re rehabilitated over time, but the ones just born evil, they can't. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, they need to be removed from society, but I don't know that we that it's just to to kill them. I, I don't know. Punishment is a strange thing. Removal from society, yes. Death penalty, I'm not so sure about. Now, um, I think about uh, people born this way. Some people are what we call sociopaths. That's the old term for it. The new term is uh, in psychiatry is uh, antisocial personality disorder. Not uh, social anxiety, that's different, where you're nervous to go out. Antisocial, these are people who have no conscience, who just take what they want. They, they manipulate people. They don't feel bad for it at all. They're born that way. And psychiatrists can tell you there's no cure for it. There is no known cure. Should those people be punished for doing what comes naturally? What do you think? I don't know. Something to think about. And I do want to, you know, I would like to hear your thoughts on whether people are just born evil or some people just born to do evil and there's no hope, no chance, you know, for them. I'd love to, uh, to read about your thoughts in the comments if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening on um, podbean.com or any other fine podcasting site. I'd love to hear from you. And my email, I'll put it up on the screen, it's matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. Matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. would love to hear your thoughts about all this. All right, Albert Fish, the real-life boogeyman. Next time, we'll continue on with some other serial killers. But uh, I hope that he doesn't haunt your dreams tonight, as he very well may. And I certainly hope while you're halfway asleep, you don't hear the sound of a window being smashed and someone... <laughs> The hell was that? Uh, yeah, I better go. Um, uh, yeah, thanks for watching and listening again, and uh, see you next time. As always, sleep well if you can. Mm -hmm.